Um, I am excited to introduce Haley Gray Scott, our speaker this evening. Haley is a former nun, um, not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E, which is someone who um, doesn't affiliate with any religion. She is passionate about learning how to reach those who are like she once was in spiritual darkness. Haley is an author and social researcher who focuses on issues related to leadership and spiritual formation. Her writing has appeared in several outlets, including Christianity Today, The Washington Post, Christian Education Journal, Real Clear Religion, Relevant, and Books and Culture. Her book, Dare Mighty Things, Mapping the Challenges of Leadership for Christian Women, explores the challenges facing female Christian leaders in ministry. As an international speaker and a consultant, Haley helps ministries and Christian organizations equip women for ministry. She is currently at work on a book exploring ways in which men and women can work effectively together in ministry. In her spare time, she loves to run and to bake bread. She lives in Littleton, Colorado, attends West Bowles Church, um, and lives here and attends there with her husband, Paul, and their two daughters, Ellie and Viv. It's my pleasure to introduce Haley Gray Scott. Thank you. I always get embarrassed with the bio. I'm like, oh, I don't like that very much anyway. Thank you all. I'm so glad to be here with you and, and talk a little bit about the Me Too movement and how that impacts the workplace. Um, as Danielle mentioned, my name is Haley Gray Scott, and um, I've been married for almost 17 years to, to Paul. I can't believe it's been almost 17 years. Um, and we have two daughters, Ellie and Viv. And I, right now I serve as the director of the Young Adult Initiative at Denver Seminary. And what we do there is we try to figure out how to re-engage the 23 to 29 year olds back into the Christian faith. Because more than ever, you know, people are distancing themselves from religion. And the group of people that are most likely to do that are ages 23 to 29 year olds. So we're trying to figure out okay, we know these people are not going to church, so how can we re-engage them? How can we um, minister to them who have actually, who think they know the gospel, but have actually left the Christian faith? So that's what I do um, as my full-time job, but I'm also an author and a professor and a researcher, and my first book focused on the challenges facing women leaders. I kind of stumbled into it, and then I stumbled into the research for my second book as well. Um, my first book focused on, like I said, the challenges. I did my dissertation on uh, women leaders, and I examined, you know, for my dissertation, I did 21 parachurch organizations, including Focus on the Family, World Vision, Navigators, and I went and tried to figure out, okay, how do people think about women leaders serving in these organizations? For so long, we have been arguing in the Christian world about whether or not women could be leaders, but all the time we had all these women serving in leadership. So how did we think about those women? And I found a couple of challenges, but then I realized, okay, no one's actually ever going to read a dissertation, right? I mean, do you guys read dissertations? No, I mean, only if someone makes you do it. So um, I went and interviewed Christian women around the world. I talked to women in Africa and Israel and Texas and uh, Thailand and I asked them what are your main challenges and after I talked to them I came up with about 10 challenges and I cover those in Dare Mighty Things but one of the challenges that I thought was really important is the trouble that women had partnering alongside men in ministry you know it might be that 
that they say, well, I can't break into the old boys club or I can't, um, I feel awkward because they talk about the Billy Graham rule. Um, one woman explained to me that she was in a Gordon Conwell program. She was, she was a pastor and she was getting her preaching degree. She was an intensive at Gordon Conwell out in Boston and she flew out there and she was in her hotel for the first night and she heard that there had been a murder right outside the building of where they're gonna hold classes. So she goes down the next morning and all of her colleagues, all men were sitting there eating breakfast and she goes up to one that she thought she knew pretty well. And she said, hey Tom, can I get a ride to, to school? Because I'm, you know, kind of nervous about, you know, this situation with the what happened last night. And all of a sudden, all the guys stopped what they were doing, forks halfway to their mouth, looked at Tom, and she's like, oh, my gosh, because she knows what they're thinking. How can this woman ask a man if, she's, if she can ride with him alone in a car? And she said, in front of everybody in the middle of the hotel lobby, Tom, I do not want to have sex with you. I want a ride to class. That's what I want. And so everyone laughed and, you know, they thought, okay, that really does sound ridiculous once you say it out loud. So she was able to get a ride and feel safe. But, you know, Jackie really mentioned something that, you know, is prevalent in Christian organizations and churches and things like that, which is, you know, men are you know, often avoid meeting with women. And, you know, I, in the time since I've done that, I've met women who do that as well, women who follow what we call the Billy Graham rule. They won't meet with men in, you know, alone or ride with them alone in cars and things like that. Um, so after that, I was asked to speak at Biola, and I realized, you know what, I've never really heard from men on this issue. I don't feel comfortable going in and speaking to undergraduate students, both men and women, if I haven't heard from men. I really wanted to get their side of the story. Biola had asked me because they had realized they had a problem with graduating students that once they graduated and went into ministry, they were struggling with how to partner together with the opposite sex. So I floated about... 10 questions, no, four questions to 10 men. And I got back 35 pages of single space responses based on this issue. And I was incredibly shocked at you know the response that I got. And I realized men have a lot to say. And so I spent um, two years um, interviewing men across the country and some around the world. Um, I got their input. N.T. Wright, Tom Wright told me that my questions were too American. So I'm like, okay, thanks, Tom. I appreciate that. But um, then I sent it to Mike Bird in Australia, and he's like, no, your questions are fine. So I'm like, and then someone said, Tom just has the unfortunate problem of being British, old, and Anglican. <laughs> but anyway, um, he was he was great. You know, he was a great sport. But um, I found out, and then I went and interviewed men across the country in church, parachurch, and um, Christian academia, and I interviewed men serving in the north, northeast, southeast, midwest, northwest, southwest, and I talked to about a hundred men, you know, over this period, and I and I got to hear a lot of things, and I got to hear their perspective, and after I've, you know, heard from women and heard from men, you know, and I was dealing with this data, the Me Too movement hit. Um, and so I was just really thinking about, okay, so how can we partner to, 
together effectively in ministry. And the Me Too movement has been, you know, something that's really significant that has happened. Because, you know, sexual violence is one of the world's oldest crimes. Um, it accounts, accounts of it appear in Greek mythology, in the Old Testament. It's um, in ancient laws in, in Rome address it. So it's one of the world's oldest crimes. And now we're seeing for so long that women have remained silent on this issue. Women have um, been afraid to come forward or been afraid to talk about the problems that they've had in regards to working with men in ministry and men in the workplace in general. Um, here's some statistics on sexual violence. It's one of the world's most underreported crimes. For every 1,000 rapes, only 310 are reported to police. Only 57 lead to an arrest. Only 11 are referred to prosecutors. Only seven will lead to a felony conviction. And only six of 1,000 rapists will be incarcerated. And with statistics like this, it's easy to understand why victims don't speak out, while victims you know, remain silent about the things that happen to them because it's, it's easier. You know, victims remain silent because it's so hard to speak truth to power. You know, victims remain silent because they're, most of the time, the perpetrators go free anyway. They, they, they're silent because they don't, they're afraid that they're not going to be believed. And so that's why for millennia, vic, you know, victims have remained silent about sexual assault. But in October of 2017, last year, something incredible happened. That ancient dam that held back all those stories, it cracked and then finally broke until you have what we have, we're dealing with even six months later. As in today, Bill Hybels resigned from his position because in the midst of allegations of sexual misconduct. So we have, you know, people that we have esteemed for a long time, you know, uh, being accused of these crimes. Um, and so this has happened, you know, this has been the Me Too movement, and this is then after the Me Too movement stoked the Me, the Church Too movement of saying, okay, this is happening in churches too. Um, it trended, the Me Too movement trended in 85 countries and reached into almost every industry, media, academia, sports, music, politics, and technology. The victims aren't silent anymore. Um, but as for me, I watched these developments with two minds. I watched them as a researcher, and I also watched them as a rape survivor myself. Six months after I became a Christian, or I came back to the Christian faith, I accepted Jesus when I was five, said the little prayer, will you be king of my heart? And then I fell away from the faith when my parents got divorced, and we kind of weren't welcome in our Baptist church anymore. And I became an atheist, agnostic, hardcore, and um, but I always say that God haunted me. He wouldn't leave me alone. I mean, he just chased me into whatever dark place that I went, and he didn't let me go. And I came back to Christianity, and I came back with verve. I mean, I really flew into it, and I was ready to help other people come back to Christ and, you know, minister to other people and... Um, Six months after I came back to Christianity, I was um, raped by the youth pastor that I worked for. So, um, 
you know, I as a writer, I kind of like metaphor, using the familiar to communicate the unfamiliar. But there isn't a metaphor for what it feels like to be raped, to live in a body that's been raped forever. Um, I would go into um, church, and I would feel like, I didn't know what panic attacks were at the time. I was 21. This was t- almost 20 years ago. So I didn't know what panic attacks were. So I'd go to church, and I knew that I felt like my heart was going to fall out of my chest. I was so scared to go to church. I was so scared whenever my dad, my dad who raised me almost by himself, would pick me up to take me out to dinner, and I would be clutching the uh, the, the door handle, just white-knuckling it, because I was so terrified. No matter how much I tried to talk myself out of it, it was still like unbearably frightening for me and I didn't know what was happening to me until I actually started to talk to some friends and start to understand what had happened to me and understand what happens to a person when they have been assaulted and you know the the traumatic the post-traumatic stress disorder in dealing with that situation Uh, in my case the youth pastor picked the wrong person Um, he ended up losing his job he got kicked out of seminary Um, he lost where he was living he got left the state, but he wasn't ever convicted of the crime because I did not press charges because I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do that at that time. Today would be a different story. Um, so it took years for me to utter the word rape. It took me maybe 15, 16 years to utter it, to be able to say that word. Um, I had the understanding but not the capability to communicate all that it was like. Um, so because that's my story, I was I rejoice in the Me Too movement because like all those other women, I was quiet. I didn't say anything because the act of telling someone that you've been assaulted is like an assault because you're laying yourself open, you're being very vulnerable, you're telling something very private about yourself, and you risk being misunderstood, you risk not being believed. And so victims like I, like everybody else, just did not say anything for almost two decades. So that's why I rejoice in the Me Too movement. Um, But as a researcher, I watched the Me Too movement with some anxiety because I knew that for that one monster in my path, there is an army of good, godly men behind me, an army of them who have taken me under their wing, have nurtured me, have guided me, have supported me. And I knew that the men that that I had spoken with, especially the ones that were really hardcore in the Billy Graham role, they, uh, they were going to back off even more. And rightfully so, because, you know, maybe they may have followed the Billy Graham rule because they wanted to honor their wives. Some men followed the Billy Graham rule because their wives told them to. They said, you better not hire that pretty young woman to be your, you know, worship leader. Women said that. They may have hired, uh, they may have done the Billy Graham rule because they wanted to protect their ministry. One man told me, look, Haley, if one false allegation And it's not just my life destroyed, it's my family's life, this ministry, the people's faith in this ministry, just one time. And so as I thought about this, I was like, I heard the 
the flood of allegations and I started to think, how is this going to impact men in ministry? And I thought for the vast majority, people who are not thinking, they're going to retreat even further into that because they're not going to want to risk any kind of misunderstanding or any kind of, um, you know, anyone thinking that they're doing something inappropriate or questioning anything that they may do. And that will ultimately have an impact on women leaders because for the most part, it's men who hold the most leaderships in Christian organizations. And it's men who need to sponsor and mentor young women in these organizations in order for them to thrive in ministry. A lot of women have left ministry just because they weren't able to get that mentorship and sponsorship. There was a woman in California serving in a parachurch organization and uh, the president of the organization told her, well, you know, I don't meet with women and I only make decisions over lunch, so I'm not really sure where that leaves us. So she ended up leaving her job after a year because she wasn't able to get anything done in her department because the leader of the organization wouldn't even meet with her to get decisions made. He had one way of doing things, which was making decisions over lunch, and he wouldn't meet with lunch for her. So he had no gray area. He had not thought through, okay, how's this going to impact, you know, how's this going to impact women leaders that are trying to thrive and serve God with their giftedness? Um, it's an interesting thing in my household because my husband is actually a sex addictions counselor with a caseload of over a hundred men and he tells guys follow the Billy Graham rule and so we've had a lot of discussions in our house what does that mean for female leaders and so I realized that the population he works with needs to um, do that for a while and he's seen that okay, maybe what I'm telling men to do does have ripple effect in the way they serve in their organizations. Um, so most of the men that I spoke with talked about a degree of awkwardness in partnering with women in ministry. They, they mentioned the tension. I mean, if you were to look at all the interviews that I said and I asked a general question, you know, what do you think about working with women in ministry? Most of them, the first thing they went to was, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to handle this. I don't know, you know, it was like the Billy Graham rule was the most talked about subject when I, ta when I asked Christian men, you know, how do you help women leaders? You know, what is it like to partner with a woman leader? This is what they mentioned. Um, most men wanted to do the right thing. They wanted to be above reproach as the scriptures, scriptures advise, trying to honor the integrity of the ministry they worked for. So even in the secular movement, even the secular world before the Me Too movement, two-thirds of men and women agree that there should be some kind of boundaries, should be some kind of parameters for men and women serving in the workplace together. And if you think about it, um, we have women, the women and men have only been working together in like an institutional setting for 50 years. And if you think, okay, 50 years is a pretty long time, but it's actually, it's not. In the grand scale of human history, that's less than 1% of human history. And if you think about your lifetime, less than 1% of a 40-year-old's life is like, you know, four months or something like that. 
it's not a lot of time. I haven't even figured out how to use my iPhone, and I've had it a year. So, I mean, it takes a long time for change to take root, and that's what we're grappling with. There's really two elements that we're grappling with in the workplace. The movement away from the home, for most for of historical time, we've conceived of the workplace as a place that is centered around the home. And so there is, you know, there may be farming, there may be all kinds of trade and things like that, but it was centered around the home. And it's only in the last hundred years that we've had that shift away from that. And then also, we've also had the shift towards women working together with men in those environments. And so it's a very awkward thing to, to understand to deal with. I mean, change takes a long time to take root. And so that's the, the root of the awkwardness is we just haven't figured out how do we manage these relationships. So what can we do to partner effectively together in ministry? There have been two major approaches that I've seen. One is stronger than the other. And the first is what I call the bubble wrap approach. Um, Danielle mentioned, and I mentioned briefly, that I have two daughters, Ellie and Viv. Ellie is this blonde hair, bright blue-eyed extrovert who can't stop talking. In fact, I think that my youngest is delayed in speaking because Ellie wanted to talk for her for so long. She talks for, Vivi is almost seven and Ellie still talks for her. And I'm like, Ellie, you've got to let Vivi talk. Um, Vivi is a dark-haired brunette and green eyes and she is an introvert just like me and her dad. And, you know, Ellie, in her own words, she says, I just have to say exactly what's on my mind the moment that it's there. I just have to. And you can tell, like, when she's, I'm, like, telling her to be quiet, she's just, I've got to say it. I've got to get it out. She just can't stop talking. And Vivi is very quiet, and she chooses her words carefully. And I've noticed now that you know she has we've discovered she has epilepsy and so it affects the regions of her brain that that control language and reading but um she chooses her words carefully and then when she does it's like boom you know and um so ellie's approach to life is very what i call bubble wrap ellie worries about things so one day water in our new house water actually started coming through our windows and she was beside herself in tears. Another time, someone spilled gasoline in our shed and it was coming through our uh, swamp cooler and she thought our house was gonna explode and she burst into tears. And it is so bad that we actually have a rule that, Ellie, you cannot be scared unless mommy is scared. Now this past weekend, I was up at Estes Park and I spent the night and I came I came home early because I miss my kids so much, and I sent I sent my husband up there instead to stay the second night that would paid for. And Ellie was like, "Mom, you can't fall asleep before us. Mom, you're not gonna fall asleep, are you? Mom, you're not gonna fall asleep, are you? Mom, did you lock all the doors? Mom, did you take the dogs out to go to the bathroom? Mom, did you do this? Mom, did you do that?" And I'm like, "Ellie, stop, <laughs> stop." So Ellie's very bubble wrapped. She's very very cautious. I mean, she and she always has been. You know, she likes to follow the rules. She likes to color within the lines. And I've known that about her since she was this big. I have a picture of her this big. And she's holding a piece of bread, and she's about to feed a duck. And right back in the distance is a sign that says, please do not feed the ducks. 
And I took that on purpose, and I had her feed those ducks there on purpose because I knew that someday it'd drive her nuts, and it does. Um, and then uh, there was one night I was, you know, Vivi is my daredevil, and she doesn't pay attention at all to the rules. She at seven, she doesn't even really pay attention to traffic. She just she's just throws caution to the wind. She's constantly doing something mischievous. And um, one night I was cooking spaghetti, and Ellie comes in, and she's, again, beside herself. And she's like, Mom, the chandelier is on fire. And I was like, Ellie, it is not. Just let me cook the spaghetti, okay? And she's like, no, really, Mom. The, the chandelier's on fire. Vivi set the chandelier on fire. And so she was just crying so bad, I decided, okay, I'll just go put this child out of her misery and I'll just show her the chandelier's not on fire. And then I walk around the front entryway and the chandelier is on fire. And Vivi had thrown, and Vivi was in the corner laughing. She had thrown a ski cap on top of the lights and it had lit that wool thing up and lit the thing on fire. And yeah, if Ellie hadn't have been there worrying herself to death, the house would have burned down to the ground. And so that's pretty much the the difference between Vivi and Ellie is, you know, one is very cautious and one is very not. And that's how Christians traditionally treat each other in the workplace. On the one hand, we have the bubble wrap approach. This is the approach that's characterized by high boundaries and little interaction with the opposite sex. Um, culturally, it's been termed um, the Modesto Manifesto or the Billy Graham Rule. The, it's called the Modesto Manifesto because Billy Graham was with a group of leaders that he esteemed, and he decided in Modesto, in a hotel in Modesto, that he would not ride in an elevator with a woman alone. He would take the, go to those lengths to ensure his own personal purity. He's often, Billy Graham was cited as an exemplary model of this approach, and, you know, he... It has to be said that not one single allegation of sexual misconduct was ever, ever, ever levied against him. It was not leveled against him. He was able to have a spotless reputation in ministry. Um, it wasn't because he didn't distrust himself. It's just because he wanted to be above reproach. Here's some quotes from men who um, follow the Billy Graham rule. I think the biggest challenge is really from the perspective of being a married man, where, you know, I have a wife that I'm faithful to. There's always has to be a distance, you know. There's an added layer, I guess you'll say, of the complication when you're working with women. From a male, you know, wanting to be faithful to the Lord, faithful to my home, I just have to protect myself. One of the first things I did when I came here was put a glass door in my office. There's complete transparency. I don't travel alone with a woman, even if it's just my, in my vehicle across town. Another man said, um, it's super easy for me to hop in the car with one of my male leaders and go to lunch and hammer through some difficult issue, challenges that we might, might have, and never think twice about it. But I won't do that with a female. Um, quotes from women in the doctoral program, they mention um, how excluded they feel. So when a man mentions the Billy Graham rule, he's doing it from the perspective of, I want to, most of the time, it's I want to honor my wife, honor my home, honor the ministry that God has gifted to me. And all of those are good intentions. But the way the woman receives it is, 
Oh, he's instantly, that she instantly feels sexualized, demoralized, unheard, and dismissed. That's just the way that she perceives it. That's the way the woman said, I'd really like to be part of the conversations that my cohorts have over lunch. A lot of men will say that, um, you know, when they're in classes together, when they're doing, especially these intensive programs where you're together for from eight to five and then you have a lunch break and, you know, women in these programs are often the, the lone rangers and they mention feeling alienated and isolated because men don't invite them to the table to talk about lunch. And for my job as the youth director, or not the youth director, um, the director of the Young Adult Initiative, kind of similar, um, <laughs> I went to interview a woman who is, you know, the family architect down in, it's a huge church in Colorado Springs. I can't remember the name. Maybe New Life. Huge. Has flags all around it. And um, she said that, you know, she's a very beautiful woman. She was one beauty pageants back in the day. And she said that one of the reasons she's not in Christian academia is because of this issue. Because she would go to work and men would uh, say, oh, you add such beauty to your table. And she says, I don't care about my beauty. I want to talk about creationism. I want to talk about theology. I don't want... I'm not here to add beauty to your table. That's not what I want to add. And the women would tell her, oh, you can't, you need to like wear glasses. You don't need to fix your hair. You need to stop wearing nice clothing and wear frumpy stuff. And she said, that's just not me. I'm not going to be somebody I'm not just to fit in in this place. And so she left Christian Academia because of that. Um so that's some of the ways that women experience the Billy Graham rule. Um, so the, the daredevil approach is, this is approach characterized by very little or no boundaries. And I use an extreme example of this because it's out there, but there are people all along the spectrum. These people argue that because of grace and Christ's death on a cross, boundaries aren't necessary. Since men and women live in theoretically equalized environments, we need to tear down the old boundaries established between men and women because they are nothing more than corsets that force us to comply with external standards. They say that since Jesus was not afraid to enter into a relationship with women, with people of the opposite sex, we shouldn't be afraid to do that. So we shouldn't have to have boundaries. We shouldn't have to worry about the window or you know, riding alone with them, there should just be no problem. Um, some women have mentioned, this is a quote from a woman, it's, I'll read part of it, not all of it, because it's weird. Um, she, one woman said, I've also learned that other men, apart from my husband, are beautiful. Brian is beautiful, and I found that I can be happy to express things like, I'm going to take a picture of you with your kids. This light would be perfect to watercolor you. And it's just trying to figure out a way not to have those boundaries between someone of the opposite sex if they're not married to. Quotes from men, you need to have relationships with women that are not your wives. If you think about it, any kind of ministry, it's going to involve ministering in a congregation. Half of the congregation or more are going to be women. So if you don't know how to engage women, then things are not go good. Um... Another said, men and women, even those who are married, can and do have healthy relationships that don't lead to sex. So those are some of the 
ways that people have characterized it. You know, there's a the daredevil approach. It's pretty. The people that I read are pretty extreme. Like that's the absolute end point. You know, before right before you hop into like the sexual realm. You know, so they're about as far as you can go. But there are people all along the spectrum. You know, if and we are all along the spectrum. And so I'd like you to consider your typical interactions with your colleagues or, you know, the people that you minister with. You know, where are you on that spectrum and where are your colleagues? And I'll let you think about that for a minute and we'll discuss it. And talk about it to your talk about it to each other too. Let's just talk about it as a group. So, where would you place yourselves? Billy Graham rule, bubble wrap, the daredevil. Where would you put yourself? I'm probably more towards the Billy Graham rule. Are you? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, but I work for a small company, and it's about 50 50 men and women, mm -hmm. and we're all friends. Yeah. And so, it's a little bit different because. Yeah. But I would feel awkward traveling with a woman or, or something like that. Right. Yeah, it would be weird. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So I work in corporate America in a um, um, pretty high-ranking position, and, uh, and I've been the only female in my IT division um, in a leadership role IT. for over 20 years. And... Um, and so I'm very much on the daredevil side. I mean, my boss is the CIO, and we have one-on-ones all the time, and we go to lunch, and we go to dinner, and we're in his office having meetings with the door closed, and there's never any question that he mm -hmm. has full respect of me, and I have full respect of him. Um, half of my staff is men, and we have one-on-ones in my office with the door closed. Um, I take my male staff members to lunch and celebrate their accomplishments when they finish a successful project. I take my team to baseball games and we do service projects together. I mean, I just, I don't think you're a man and I'm a woman. I think we're both Gates employees. Yeah. I, I yeah. don't think, I, and, and so just recently, um, it's interesting because just recently we started a women's movement at Gates. Um, so it's a very male dominant manufacturing company. Mm -hmm. It's over 110 years old. and. 
Um, we were bought by a private equity firm, and when that happened, the private equity firm did a bunch of statistical analysis and went, oh my lord, you have less than 20% women in your company, right? And, 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 and the higher ranks, like, less than 1%. Yeah. Um, so we, we started book club, we read Lean In, we started doing all these initiatives, and, and really all it did was make women more aware of how um, underappreciated they are. Yeah. So I mean, it, it just kind of put the microscope on, on right. the, re so like I sit in rooms with 16 men at big conference rooms and heavy debates all the time, and for 20 years I never noticed it. Right. And yeah. now all of yeah, a sudden, yeah. with this focus, I'm yeah. like, yeah. I'm the only woman in a room with 16 men. And like, I liked it better when I didn't notice, <coughs> right? I just, I'm, I'm here because I'm good at what I do. I'm not here because I'm the token female. Yeah. Um, so anyway, it's, it's kind of strange at what I've been experiencing the last couple of years that I almost don't like the focus mm -hmm. right. on, we need to, so we started this movement called Gates Realizing Opportunities for Women Grow. Um, and the numbers didn't change at all. There yeah. weren't more female promotions. There weren't more females being hired. We just were checking the box. Like, did you did you interview a woman for this job? Yes. Okay. Great. Go ahead and hire the man. You know, I mean, it did. It just didn't really. It, it didn't really impact the organization whatsoever. Yeah. Um, so I still lead a women's book club because we all get together and we learn from each other, and it's great. And. Uh, We've read a bunch of really good books to support and encourage each other, but I, so I'm, I'm way on that side of like, I just don't, and then here at church, so I lead our small group. Mm -hmm. Like we do it together as far as we set up the living room together right. and we invite everybody and we welcome them, but, but I'm, the, I'm the leader, I have the leadership skills, so I lead our life group. And in the beginning, I felt like I had to apologize to people. Like when right. new families joined, like, I, I just want you to know that Scott's not the leader, I'm the leader. And I just want to make sure you're okay with that before you join our group. And they're like, yeah, I'm okay with that. Yeah, it's, you know, that's fine with me. But we've actually had people like leave our life group because it's yeah. like, well, I really should be in a life group with a man leader. Yeah. Um, so it's really been interesting. And at one point, I felt off. So I, I went to our teaching pastor and I was like, you know, I just want to make sure you know, like, I'm the leader of the life group. I just want to make sure you're okay with that. And he's like, are you kidding? Like, you're an awesome leader. Of course I'm okay with that. But it started to feel like maybe I shouldn't be the leader because it's the man of the family that's right. supposed to be the leader in the church, you know. And and I just have strong leadership abilities, and he knows that. Get a little bit of furniture. <laughs> 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 See, I was like you. I mean, I didn't really grow up in a Christian home. I mean, so, you know, my, my mom left when I was 13, and she was the one who introduced me to Christ, and then I was left with my dad who didn't really go to church. And, you know, later on I'd say, Dad, I think you need to go to church, you know. And he goes, why? And I said, to have fellowship. And he's like, Haley, why would I want to have fellowship with those people? And I'm like, good point. I mean, because they were really harsh. You know, it was very cultural Christianity. People went to church because everybody went to church. I mean, that's the way it was just 30 years ago, you know, um, especially in deepest East Texas. But, um, but you know, my dad told me, you can be anything you want. You can do anything you want. There are no limits. And so then I get to seminary, and people are talking about, 
oh, whether or not women could be leaders. And I'm like, what are you fools? I mean, come on. I mean, there's a ton of women leaders out there. Are you do you not are you not aware of the, all these women leaders? And so that's really how I started my dissertation is like thinking, okay, there's all these women leaders, and you guys are arguing about whether or not women can be leaders. Not they're already clearly leading. So, yeah. What's the point? Where 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 are you? And um, but yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean. Do you think that the other men in your organization are on this level with, with other women or way over here in the daredevil realm with other women or do you think that they're more guarded? Uh, so we, I mean, um, it really has to do with, so for instance, you can even take the topic of working from home, right? I mean, it yeah. really is your personal perspective, right? So. There's men that have five women in their department, and there's men who their whole entire division is all men because mm -hmm. they don't feel comfortable with women and they don't know how to deal with women and they're too emotional or they're too intense or right. whatever, right? So part of our diversity education is trying to educate on the value of diversity, the value of women and men coming together and what, what each party brings to the table and how that adds value to a corporation. Um, but like I said, we're still under 20% of 14,000 employees, under 20% are women. Part of that is because it's manufacturing, but part of that is because it's the good old boys network and it yep. still exists and it's strong. Right. You know, it's, this is, I'm thinking of a story, it's the second time I told it, so, but I'm gonna do it anyway. Um, there is a, when I ask men, you know, what do you think about working with women? What do you think about partnering with women in ministry? What happens? when men and women work together it doesn't happen when it's just men or just women and I had posed that same question to women as well and we talked about the difference between women's ministries the craft and the fluff and the pink and then the men's ministries the mm, football and hunting and you know how like when men or women are kind of separated we kind of become caricatures you know we don't become real and so when I asked men what do you think they couldn't answer me. They couldn't answer me. They couldn't answer me. What do, do women bring to the workplace? What happens when men and women work together that doesn't happen? They couldn't answer. Um, one guy said, and this is what I said, I've said, told this story, but one guy actually said that he's working in a parachurch somewhere in the Midwest, I don't know where, homeless shelter, and he said, well, you know, I really value partnering with women because when I go through these you know, desolated buildings, I don't get hit on by prostitutes if a woman is with me. And that's the value that a woman brought. <laughs> you are so ill-informed. <laughs> it's funny because, yeah, I, mean, I, I work in a very, I mean, I, you know, our company, Lockheed Martin, right, our, our largest customer is the U.S. government, right? 100,000 employees, $50 billion a year. Um, so it's a huge, you know, company that is obviously in great, you know, I mean, it's it's uh, entrenched in the movement of diversity and inclusion, and, and so it's, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a big deal within the company. I mean, but what I will say is I have seen a lot of movement over the years of, um, especially in top positions, right? I mean, half our CEO is a woman. Um, and so, uh, you know, I mean, there's definitely a lot of movement from how many um, males I used to see in leadership to today. I mean, the percentage is definitely shifting. Um, we still obviously have a lot more males in the workforce because it's a technology-based company, engineering, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so you still have that, you still have that imbalance. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed 
that like we, you know, I mean, we, we have um, relationships that were completely normal, just like you were saying, right? You know, I mean, nobody even really paid much attention to it, right? And it was like, okay, everybody's just kind of getting along. And, and I was always under the impression of, you know, everybody should be treated equally and, and you're there for your intellect. That's, that's what the company, that's your value, your value to the company is what you bring to the table from an, an intellectual perspective. It's not about what you look like, it's not about what gender you are, it's about what are you bringing to the table to help the company move forward. And, and, um, and it's, it's, been, it's been very interesting to me in the midst of this movement because now, basically, one of the reasons that I, that I wound up here tonight is because I, am, uh, I volunteered a few weeks ago to become the executive sponsor for the Women's Impact Network at, at yeah. work. And, and, um, and one of the reasons for that is because as I was uh, first coming into leadership ranks many years ago, I would, um, I would you know, get these really qualified women who would apply to the positions that I'd put out there, and I'd look at where they were relative to their salaries and relative to the other people that I was interviewing, and it was just, it was mind-blowing to me. I, I would, and it was like, these people have been completely overlooked. And so it became a passion of mine just to say, hey, you know, I mean, we, obviously something, and I, I don't think it's, um, how can I say this? I don't think it's purposeful. I don't right. think it's that, that they're purposefully saying, well, I'm not going to, you know, promote them or give them more responsibility, give them more visibility. Um, because they're a woman, I just think that it's something that is like a bias that is kind of like, okay, well, they, you know, a lot of times they're not as aggressive, not right. as, and, and so a lot of times they get, Overlooked, and so that's that's kind of how I wound up here. But I never, you know, I'm I'm definitely more on the daredevil side as far as yeah. you know. I just it just doesn't it doesn't phase me at all. I don't even think about it differently. Yeah. Um, so it's just you know, but but now when you start you know when you start mentioning these things, kind of like what you're saying, right now it's out there and it's like oh gosh, am I am I putting myself at risk? Am I you know? And so you start to you know analyze these things, but I don't know. Right. Anyway. Have y'all seen the invisible gorilla test? Okay, so one, I'm gonna ruin it for you. There's more that you can take, but, so there's a group of people in black t-shirts, and then there's a group of people in white t-shirts, and you can find this on YouTube, you can find a lot of them, and, and across it says, count how many times the players in white pass the basketball. And so I'm counting, and da 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 and I'm like, 14, and, the correct answer is 14. And then it said, and I'm like, yay, I rock. I did a good job. Selective attention. It's great. Then it says, but did you notice the gorilla? And I'm like, what gorilla? <laughs> and then it rewinds the tape. And a man-sized gorilla, a guy dressed in a gorilla suit, walks into the middle of the group and pounds his chest for a few minutes, a few seconds, and then walks out. And I didn't even see him. Huh. I mean, didn't even see him. And the whole point of that test is to show that we only pay attention to what we expect. And so I think of this often when I think about the troubles of women succeeding in leadership is because it's the thing of the invisible gorilla. We have that implicit bias that we don't expect women to have leadership skills. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. A lot of the leadership has shifted over time, but we expect leaders to be one thing, we expect women to be another thing. You know, if a woman displays what we want in a leader, we think of her as someone right. that's unlikable. Yeah. And so we don't expect women to be charismatic leaders, to be capable, especially in IT or something like that. Uh, you know, any kind of technology or engineering, 
um, we don't expect women to be leaders. And so we have that implicit bias because we're not, we don't see it. A lot of men don't see it because they're not looking for it. It's right there. They just can't see it because, and they're not doing it out of some malicious intent. It's just they don't see it. Yeah, I have so many stories like, so, you know, in IT, you have go lives, big software implementation, big go live. And so mm -hmm. early on in my career, so Friday night, we're kicking off this big go live. We're going to work all weekend. And, you know, the vice president comes by, like, how's it going? And, and he sees me and he's like, where are your kids tonight? Mm -hmm. and, and, and I'm like, home with their dad. dad. <laughs> you know, and, and I bit my tongue, but I just wanted to say, how come you're not you're asking the men the guys, where right? their kids yeah. are tonight, right? Right. Like, but he asked me, like, where are your kids tonight? Like, what are you doing at work on a Friday night? You should be home with your children, you know? Shouldn't sit there in the car. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just so many stories. And, and men have said to me, like, one time early in my career, men said, you know, you're a lot more, you're a lot more like a man than you are a woman. Mm -hmm. Like, why? Because I'm a strong leader, because people follow me, because right. people respect me. I've had women say to me, wow, you have a lot of men that report to you. Do they actually listen to you? <laughs> like, like, certainly men won't listen to you because you're a woman, right? Like, shocked that I'm in the position that I'm in, and I have men who report to me. And some of them are even older than you. They actually, yeah. like, do what you say. I'm like, of course. But it's just, I mean, so the bias is on both sides, right. male and it female. Is. Absolutely. And I, I mean, by... So I went to an event last Wednesday night called um, the uh, what's it the uh, Women's Hall of Fame. I don't know if you've ever yeah, heard yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Lockheed probably has a table. Gates yeah, has yeah. had a table for yeah. years. Anyway, it's women that are astronauts and women who are the wow. dean at CSU and that. I mean, it's just and the stories of like the adversity that they've had to conquer to get where they are. Um, awesome. Yeah, it was. I mean, I just cried the whole night. It was just. It was just. That's something I'd love to take my daughter to because Ellie especially is engineering. As I was leaving, she was making her own kinetic sand, and she's always, like, making exploding things in our kitchen. So she's very into engineering and science, and I want her to know that there's other, ones out there. there's other women out there like you. You can be good at math. It's okay that you're good at math. Your mother is not, but, you know, it's fine that you are, you know, and I love you. Were you going to say something? Well, I think I, I've got to go and say that, you know, talking to Daredevil or Billy Graham, uh, to me, I've, I've always taken that situational. Mm -hmm. That makes depending sense. Depending upon the situation, depending on the person, and depending upon what's going on. Um, I had the honor, joy, whatever, of being basically mentored by people like Elisa Morgan, yep. Tim Weber, who was the church history prophet, Denver Seminary, Alice Matthews, some right. different people. And not only that, but then when I was overseas, we had as many women pastors as we had men pastors. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't, the mentoring helped me, because I came out of the construction world into a ministry world. No, right. construction world, it's, that's a whole different ballgame. Yeah. But, the, but being around people who were, at that time, very, very progressive mm -hmm. really helped me begin. It shaped 
my view and it helped change and shape the way I looked at it. Yeah. And it made it made it very much more much more. It made it much richer. And the whole idea of being able to collaborate and work together and uh, realize that you guys are incredibly creative, way more creative sometimes than we guys are, and yeah. to be able to, to bring that into it. Uh, I feel like I, I had the best of all worlds, and yet there was this other side of guys that were in ministry together that, uh, wow. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. And, 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 yeah. And well, not only got tripped up, but were buttoned up. They they considered themselves all buttoned up and buttoned. Yeah. One of the uh, one of the things that I ran into one time was I, I was staffing up a program and I had I, I don't know at this time it, there's probably about ten or fifteen people. It was a pretty small team, but about ten or fifteen people and and um, and I had like I don't know maybe six or seven women on the team, but. All of them happened to be younger, attractive, and I had, I can't tell you how many men come by and tell me, you know, you gotta watch what you're doing here because, you know, this could look really bad. And I'm like, why? And I'm like, well, because you've got all, and I'm like, oh my God. And this isn't and so, a secular work, right? Oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah, yeah. And so um, it, just, it was just fascinating <clears throat> to me to, it's like, so you, so you do something because you're trying to do the right thing, right? Hire the best mm -hmm. people for the job, period. And then all of a sudden, people come along and say, oh, you know, this, this doesn't look right. Right. Like, wow, okay. Um, so. so I have a question. Wait, Dad, I didn't interrupt. So I have a question, because when you defined the daredevil, mm -hmm. you said one step away from having a sexual relationship. And so that automatically cast, for me, a really negative It did, for me, that. too. Um, because that's the way that... It, in the, I was talking about the extreme example that I used. Not that that's the, the spectrum as a whole, but that's the example that I used as far as, you know, the people that are advocating for this position, the people that are most vocal for it. You know, the, the guy that um, wrote a book on this, he will go take his female, young female blonde friend out to dinner on Valentine's Day, buy her gifts for her birthday. They go on vacations together you know, out of state and leave his wife at home. So the people that advocate for this position, they're one step away. You know, so, you know, people on the spectrum may not be there, but that's kind of like the spectrum. So we have the buttoned up people way over here and we have the others way over here and, you know, everybody else is probably somewhere in the middle. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So it's not necessarily that just that type of approach is going to automatically lead to an affair. It's that the people who advocate for this position that are most vocal about the low boundaries, no boundaries, are the people that are one step away. And that's the problem because we don't have a middle ground. We don't have a middle ground discussion about what is another way that we can look at this. You know, what is a third way? You know, you, know, you mentioned that the bias is not just men. You know, it's in women as well. You know, for me... I'm in the Billy, I'm closer to the Billy Graham. I'm not all buttoned up that I'm going to, you know, just avoid it altogether. But just because of my past, because of my history, I tend to do that, you know, even 20 years later. I mean, that's just where I landed. You know, I, if that had never happened to me, I might not be that way. But 
because of that, I'm over here. And so just like men have a lot of reasons for being where they are, women have a lot of reasons. And a lot of women are just um, the executive assistant for the secretary the executive assistant for the president at Denver Seminary was talking today. She says, I follow the Billy Graham rule. I don't meet alone with a man. I don't meet alone with the president. I'm not going to, you know, go to lunch with him or ride alone with the car with him because I don't want to anything to see, not because I'm afraid of myself, not because I'm afraid of him, but because I'm afraid of anything that, you know, perception. I want to honor yeah. integrity and perception and the way that's perceived. And so women are all along the spectrum. So if you were to think, you know, what would be the benefits of the bubble wrap approach? What do you think are the strengths of that position? Integrity. Integrity? Yeah. Or being falsely accused. Yeah. Um, yeah, because there's the other opposite. You know, I saw Joe Smith have a lunch with Angie, and it looks bad yeah. and it can cause gossip or rumors right yeah, less exposure to you know to any accusations right i mean i have a male professor who's high a friend of mine who's you know was a great mentor of mine highly you know for women in leadership advocate supports and one night he was having a discussion with a female colleague female theologian and it went late and so they went and grabbed dinner together and the next day it was the talk all over christian campus and just people saying oh what are you doing so he said i can't do that anymore can't do it anymore and just the perception issue and i've also have seen the little dinners slowly involve and it has turned into affairs right you know, so there's a fine balance between the two. Yeah. I have a friend of mine who, um, from Dallas Theological Seminary who has red light, yellow light, green light. And so she rates, like, if there is a red light and I feel a warning sign or I feel some kind of attraction, I'm not going to go out to dinner with that person. I'm actually going to tell my husband this is a red light person, not going to go I'm not going to do any professional activities but then she said there's a lot of yellow lights and green lights where I'm like it's not going to happen you know no matter what it's not going to happen that person you know is not someone that you know I'm attracted to in any regard and so she actually grades them on yellow uh, green or red <laughs> so that's one it's approach it's interesting because I've never thought about it before but um, and part of it is just because I'm so busy but I never thought of it until this discussion tonight but like I don't go to lunch with my peers because they're all men, right? And and I just, you know, a lot of them go to lunch with each other and mm -hmm. occasionally they'll invite me, but I I don't go to lunch with my peers because they're, I, I mean, I, I've never really thought about it before, but it's like, yeah. wow, I don't ever go to lunch. With, so here's the, you know, you get promoted and, and then you start moving up the ladder and all of a sudden girls night out and you don't get invited. You don't get invited, right? right. Yeah. I, I got to tell you, that happens on the other side, too. So. Yeah. <laughs> Guys night out, you don't get invited. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's interesting. So it's like you can't go to lunch with your peers because they're men, and you can't go to girls' night out because now you're a director, and it, it just, I don't know, it's it's uh, it's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting to think about this. I sat this with this female CEO. She was she worked for a lot of secular organizations, and then she was became CEO of this Christian 
organization and we were sitting on the beach in the front of our house on Lake Michigan and eating cheese and crackers and this woman who had been known to have this reputation of being very um, unlikable, hard, demanding, commanding, um, a very good leader, she started crying there that day because she felt so alone. I mean, she was by herself. No one was around her. You know, men didn't like her. Women didn't like her. Women didn't like her because she broke all the rules and she gets to be the leader and she's not like us. And in a lot of ways, she wasn't like them. You know, she's not going to sit around and knit blankets, things like that. And um, so the, in a lot of ways, she was different. But um, and she was very lonely up there. It is lonely at the top, as they say. You were gonna, Paul, is Paul your name? Mm-hmm. You were gonna say, mention something earlier. Oh, I don't remember what it was. Oh, um, I think one thing I've, I've actually I do remember was, yeah. So one thing I've had to learn is um, with the prevalence of the Me Too movement and um, how much um, sexual harassment and abuse has happened to so many different women is, is I've tried to learn um, in some ways how to defer Mm-hmm. with what they're comfortable with because right. I, I feel like there's I don't even know if that's always the right approach but um, I, I just think of different people I've worked with that, that I try to defer to whatever level they're comfortable with um, mm-hmm. it's kind of a way to um, give them a position of power. Yeah, yeah power um, but then also sometimes feeling like that that might um, cause a level of uncomfortability and, and just yeah, so I don't know. Yeah. It gets kind of messy sometimes. Of sometimes you can fall on that side, not even for the sake of trying to like protect yourself, but even trying to, to protect someone right. else. But then also not wanting that to mark their path or their their present um, and stuff too. Yeah. So I don't know. It, it just it is very complicated, and sometimes it um, you can try to fall in the middle, but it's hard to know how to. I mean, we're you know we're dealing with all of this. Just struck me as we were talking stuff we're dealing with a lot of uh, a large percentage of our workforce is retirement eligible right now mm-hmm. and so we're trying to figure out how do we how do we backfill all these positions and it doesn't it doesn't just take like a day to learn how to design a spacecraft right I mean you know this is a complicated business and so you have to actively mentor these people and and the issue is right mm-hmm. when you have a mentoring program a lot of times mentoring happens one-on-one I mean that's yeah and, and so and now if you have all the people that have the experience and are in the, the power positions, if you will, if they're all male, if they all subscribe to the Billy Graham rule, it becomes very right. difficult for a female to, to move up the chase. So it almost is like the self-perpetuating thing where, where they don't get the opportunities no. because people are afraid of, of that interaction and then they can't grow in, in the right way and, and they don't get the opportunities. So. Yeah. It's very difficult. It's true. I think that's an understatement of century. It doesn't take a, it, a day to build a spacecraft. <laughs> <laughs> understatement. Anyway, um, yeah, it's true. I mean, and it's very complicated business. It's very murky. I mean, how do you know? And I've spoken with male leaders, and they're like, I don't know what to do. I want to support women in leadership. But you know, the Me Too movement and all of these women that have had this experience and then, oh my gosh, there might be women like me who really don't want to meet alone with a man or, you know, and I'm all right. I mean, I can meet alone with a man, but I'm not going to do, like, go to lunch on a regular basis with right. a man or anything. Right. That's not, I mean, I'm just not. Right. And um, 
but how do you manage that? And I think that it's just, it's an awkward thing. I mean, for some reason, we live in this culture where we sexualize hamburgers, <laughs> and yet we're afraid to talk about sex, yeah, you know? Right. And so, I mean, what's the deal? I mean, I don't understand that at all. I mean, we, if you've seen a Carl's Jr. commercial, you know I'm not overstating the case that we sexualize hamburgers, and yet we can't talk about sexual tension in the workplace. We can't. I mean, because that's just way too awkward. But the tr trick is if you don't, it's just going to fester. And that's what we're seeing, you know. I mean, like I said, this is a very new change where men and women have been put together in this environment outside the home atmosphere. And they're trying to grapple with how do we partner together in ministry. You know, and to have people say they don't even know really exactly how that happens. So there's a lot of different areas that, that we can think of. But, um, you know, what do you think of the strengths of the daredevil approach? What do you think of, of that? Less exclusion of women. Less exclusion of women, right? Yeah. Um, recognition of all talents, right? Because everybody has their own giftedness, right? And that's right. how God made us. And so you recognize the giftedness of the individual, and it's not based on their gender, and um, it's, it's based on how they're gifted. Yeah. talking about it the other night like we've raised our kids like this so I don't know if you remember this Paul but like youth group was signing up for things that they could do to raise money to go on a mission trip and our daughter signed up for mowing lawns and they were like you mow lawns? And she's like, she's like yeah of course I mow lawns right like I mean I get 20 bucks for I was just going to say it's about, right? the, best, you know, it's about it's, the best hourly rate activity you can do as a and when you're 14 years yep. old right yep. and you know and our son does dishes it's like my husband does the laundry I mean we, we don't have a gender biased family and we didn't right. raise our kids in a gender biased family right I haven't done laundry in almost 30 years right <laughs> He's better at it than I am, you know? <laughs> My husband does the laundry, too. Right on. Yeah, there's a reason why Tracy doesn't do that. <laughs> she doesn't know how to suffering. I don't, seriously. So we talked a lot about the hang-ups with the Billy Graham rule or the bubble wrap approach. You know, it excludes women. It's, you know, um, limits women's ability to improve in ministry. It limits, you know, the growth potential that we have in ministries when men and women are able to partner together in ministry as it was intended from the beginning. Um, what do you think are some of the drawbacks with the daredevil approach? Open yourself up. I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of like the, the opposite of the, of the two, right? And so, we, you know, you open yourself up to, to uh, rumor, you mm -hmm. open yourself up to, uh, to, you know, if you wind up with somebody who for some reason or another, you misjudge their character or whatever, and they take a dislike to you. They can accuse you of, you know, hey, you know, right. you guys have been alone. You've been out to lunch, and so it's, it's, it's your word easy. against hers. That's right. That's right. And so it's it's it is it's a vulnerable position to be in. Yeah. For sure. It is. <clears throat> it can be the opposite too. Women also can be more forthcoming upon men. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it is a boundary situation. Well, think about a woman who may not be happy at home, happy with her husband, and then she sees a man who 
she thinks has all these qualities that her husband doesn't, then they get a lot of interaction at work and things like that. And, you know, it's, and women are absolutely open to, you know, the temptation as well. It's not just, it's it's not just men, it's women as well. I think about it like from the Sunday school class perspective, right? Or even teaching vacation Bible school where I've done the kids camp, all the different things that I'm involved in teaching Sunday school. It's the same thing there, right? Is that you don't, you're never alone with a child, right? Because you just don't ever want to subject yourself to, you know, some teachers joke, right? Like I'll only believe half of what your kids say about you if you only believe half of what your kids say about me, right? <laughs> and so it's, it's, but it's that whole thing of, you know, a kid says, you know, Miss Tracy did this to me or something and I would be like, no, I didn't, yeah. right? And I'm never alone with a child. It's always other parents mm -hmm. there, I mean, other teachers there. So it's that same kind of thing, like, and, and I think about it with youth group, right? I mean, 13-year-old girls are extremely vulnerable, right? And right. they're extremely dramatic. And so you're a youth group leader and you're trying to help a 13-year-old girl while she flips out and accuses you of something, right? I mean, you, you do have to be careful. Yeah. Well, and even for men, I will not go into a restroom if there's a young kid in there alone. Yeah. Interesting. I won't, yeah. I will not go in that restroom. Right. If I walk in and see a kid, I'm out. Because all he has to do is say something, that man, whatever. Yeah. So there's a side of this whole thing that really comes down to using your head. Yeah. And yeah. you know, you talk about the daredevil. To me, the danger of the daredevil is being misunderstood, right. misrepresented. Yeah. That would probably, I would say that would be the biggest, I mean, as I've thought about it and heard the stories of people, um, I would say that, that the misunderstanding is bigger even than the temptation, you yeah, know, because absolutely. the misunderstanding happens more often than the actual temptation does. Well, as, a, as an idiot man, all I've got to do is make a joke that to me is, or a comment, some offhanded comment, not thinking, stupid thing and whew, I'm in trouble. Right. I'm, I'm in trouble. I've got a, this reminded me of something, I've got a case right now where one of my clients, IP person, had a, a developer, a young Russian lady working for him, a software developer, and you know, the guy's married, this, the business and all the employees are all heavily involved in the But he told this young Russian lady, she was complaining about something, and he said, well, you don't need to love your job, but you need to love me. And oh, boy. Jokingly. Jokingly. No, like, yes, jokingly yeah. And she filed a sexual harassment lawsuit against her for that. Wow. And that's and the, She won. Well, she's not going to win. But, you know. She's <laughs> not going to win. Yeah, but... But, you know, it's just like, a, oh, you don't have to love the people you work with except for me, right? Yeah, yeah. It's so, just a little offhanded, like you said, a little yeah, stupid yeah, offhanded yeah. comment, and next thing you know, they're in yeah. a lawsuit. Yeah. But some of those, well, the thing I was going to say, and, and you kind of touched on this, some of those boundaries serve a purpose. Yeah. And we're all sitting in here, we're all, we're here at church on Wednesday night attending the lecture series. There's a lot of bad people out there. There's right. a lot of evil yes. people out there, 
And a lot of those boundaries serve a purpose. Plus, we all have human frailties. Right. And those boundaries are there to help protect us from ourselves, too. Yeah. So, I'm, like I said, I'm probably more on the Billy Graham side of that, uh, yeah. that equation. But. but I even think, you know, if you think about it, to me, this side is, is positive. It's embracing diversity and it's respecting individuals for their giftedness, but we call it daredevil. Which yeah. daredevil has a very negative connotation that you're living on the edge. Right. So, I, you know, I, I would choose a different name, I guess. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I totally had a total misunderstanding about where you were going with that yeah. question. Because, I mean, we'll be married 30 years this year. I'm happily married. I'm very loyal. I'm very devoted. I'm not a daredevil. I would never, ever put my marriage at risk. I'm a very loving, devoted mm -hmm. wife, but I meet with my boss all the time. I go to lunch with them. I go to dinner with them. I, I mean, so I don't consider myself a daredevil, mm -hmm. but I'm definitely not bubble-wrapped, you know? Yeah. I wonder if I was thinking about the fact that a lot of the ambiguity that we're talking about, I think, for us as women, also makes it difficult to know when to speak up mm -hmm. if something has happened because I think it's really easy to gaslight ourselves and mm -hmm. diminish what has happened because we don't know at times right. if it falls. Was it just a joke or yeah. was it something? Right. right. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and then even, I had a situation that was black and white, not okay, but I had convinced myself that surely he, it was a misunderstanding. Huh. So I think that it's both sides. Like on the one mm -hmm. hand, we're talking about the gray that happens between these two mm -hmm. when it comes to our interactions. But I think even um, when you talk about speaking up, I think we do the same thing. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's so nebulous, it's hard to define at times. Yeah, I think that happens a lot with men, women, especially in ministry. I mean, yeah. where you, you think, well, he's a pastor. He's the leader of the church. Surely, I miss. Surely, it was me. Yeah, I misunderstood this. Or I did something wrong, or I wore something wrong, or I just surely it is not what I think it is. And you can totally—that's a great way to say it—we gaslight ourselves, yep. totally, and so that happens. That. And I was in a workplace where it was one man and then multiple women, and during staff meetings. There were very crude, inappropriate, sexual inundated comments, jokes, whatever. And I finally said, you know, I can't do this. This isn't right in a professional environment. Mm -hmm. And it would go on and off and off and on. For one time, I walked straight out of the staff. Was it the women? But what's that? Was it the women making the comments? No, it no. was the men. And so, wow. Yes. <laughs> so my job got, I got picked on more and more and more and more. And he, I remember him finally saying, I can make anybody quit. And he did make me so miserable I had to quit. Wow. Was he in a leadership position? He was boss. Yeah. Yeah. And so you have a threat of yours. Stable. I was single at the time, so I needed that job. And so it is a really, and I finally said, I just can't do this. Which that shows the level that society has given a, a level of pastor, like authority to men, where mm -hmm. we can be a minority in a room full of women, 
you can still be inappropriate do it. and right. get away the woman is the one who has to leave. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, what's wrong yeah. with that picture? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, okay, I think we've established that we don't know how the way we work together is not working. So how should men and women partner together? You know, what are some good effective strategies? What do you think needs to change? I do, I resonate with what John said. Well, I guess Scott said this a little bit too. It, I, I, for me, it is, there is an individualistic piece of it. Like it's not, it's not black and white. I mean, it's different. So I'll, you know, I, Paul's a staff person. Like we meet once a week. Um, we meet at Atlas Coffee. I mean, it's so, but if there's a, we'll ride in a car together. But if it's somebody that I don't know, I, right. yeah. I'm not going right. to do that. Yeah. It's just not, you know, if it's I totally too much of an unknown. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I wonder if it's keeping both of those in mind, not only for self, because I think as a woman, there is a power difference. There's a physical power difference. Right. So I have to think about my protection, but I, I want to be mindful of my brother. So I don't I don't want somebody else to feel compromised either. So I for me, I wonder if it's, in, everything's individualized, but then I also think open dialogue. Mm -hmm. I've yeah. gotten more and more intentional about asking. Are you okay with this? What somebody's yeah. comfortable with. You know, are you more comfortable meeting at my office? Are you more comfortable meeting over coffee? And you say it so easy, and it's not weird when you say it, because you're saying it so easy. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, but it's also part of my job. I mean, that's yeah. what's unique. My Part of my job is to sit down with people. I, I um, if I had the Billy Graham rule, I couldn't. So, so I've had to. Part of it, I think, is sounds natural because I've had to figure out how to make it okay for me and ask for other people. Yeah, I, I don't know, but that's just my journey right now. Is I think it's got to be individualized. Yeah, and I would say I think, for as far as like I've worked at several different churches, I think Waterstone has a better approach than most churches where it is that kind of open dialogue where it makes it easier. It may be different as a man yeah. compared to a experience but um, and the other piece I was going to add to what Danielle says is that it's something that I often bring other people into so mm -hmm. um, like I'll, uh, I might meet with a woman one on one but I'd never leave that like secretive for my wife or for right. other people right. where like it, there's, if there's not a hidden nature to it then there's I think a lot less danger I agree. Um, yeah. really that can come about you still have to be mindful I, you know, I spoke with one one couple. They're not a couple, but they're co-pastors. They're not married, and they they are very open. They they meet together. They drive places together. They have lunch together. They're co-pastors, and the rule is is they have to they let their spouses know where they are, and they let hey I'm with you know Bob and we're gonna go you know hammer out the sermon series or this and that and this is where we are and want to come by come by you know and so just leaving it out in the open and not leaving it ambiguous not hiding it is one way of you know overcoming some of that that obstacle it's a really good point though because it also determined yeah it's also determined by what works for you and your spouse right, right. I mean, you know if you're in a relationship with somebody then you know you have to make sure that you're you know controlling your boundaries you know with you know within the boundaries that they would like to see as well you know i mean it yeah. So, I mean, I like sometimes I had I had a uh, female employee who was 
kind of my protege, if you will, in this particular job that I was doing. And, and uh, I mean, we text back and forth all the time because we were working on stuff, right? I'd be at home at 8.30 at night or whatever and we'd be texting back and forth because we're trying to close out a presentation or whatever. And, and, I, and I'd share some of the things with my wife. You know, I'd be like, oh, you know, you should hear what Jessica said, you know, blah. And so it just makes it, you know, it makes it feel more like, okay, you know, there's nothing being hidden here. It's not right. a, it's not a, who are you texting now? You know, I mean, it's just like, yeah. oh, no, you know, and then we go out to an apps game together or something like that as a, because she was married too. And so we just kind of, you know, became a, a foursome activity, if mm -hmm. you will, too, to just say, hey, you know, this is just somebody I'm working with. It's not, you know, it's not right. anything untoward, right? So. Yeah. We do that, and we've also given each other permission because I yeah. I work with yep. mostly men. David works with mostly women. He, he says that we're back backwards. <laughs> he I, we have that permission of if something feels red light, yeah. if something feels weird, even if it's not that either one of us are doing anything. You know, you just get that sense sometimes where you're like, mm. eh, that text or that conversation. Right. Be aware, like it's catching something in me. That's the other thing I think for us in our marriage has been really beneficial. Because then it does, it takes away the secret. And then I think if he says it to me, I'm more aware and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And try to oftentimes we still do to set up collaborative opportunities. Yeah. Where it's not really one-on-one, -on -one, but it's more collaborative, mm -hmm. two, th mm -hmm. two, three, four of us. Right. Yeah. And you, you're talking about how you mentor mentor women. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that's one of the, the, the steps that I have taken is including them, bringing them in to situations where they can grow, but really doing it group-wise as opposed to the individual thing. Yeah. And you can do that and you have to be a little more intentional about it mm -hmm. to make it work. Yeah. And I understand yeah. your, you know, your situation. Yeah. And my boss in my last job was a woman, which was, you know, great. And we were often, alone but it was just it was kind of you know it was the standard we set and it was yeah. what we knew what was going on and that's where it gets weird when other people look at it different yeah. yeah again it goes back to it's more about the perception than it is actually about the temptation a lot of times well, perception's reality mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, yeah that person. yeah that's, that's i mean that's for that person mm -hmm. With the marketing I, people, right? I think the power in the relationship has a bearing on the boundaries too, because I think the boundaries are different if it's an employer-employee mm -hmm. type of a relationship than it is with peers. Peer, peer, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's a good thing to think about as well as a different the power differential there, yeah. you know, and that's what happens with all the Me Too movement is that the power, the person in power, used that power to. Um, abuse women and so our task in the 21st century is to figure out a way in which both men and women can feel protected and women can feel heard so we want men to feel protected from potential perception issues allegations things like that we want women to feel protected and safe that they're not going to be abused by those in power as you mentioned and we want women to feel heard so we don't want them to be excluded from the old boys network you know we don't want them to be excluded when the guys go off to golf games and they talk about work and you know a lot of times that's where the promotions happen it's not in the boardroom it's on the golf course you know getting to know someone on an informal basis that's where 
you relationships happen. And you build trust. And you build trust. And it's just sort of, you think about it, it's, it's sort of a natural thing, you know. Men have told me, you know what, I don't want to give up meeting with my colleagues, you know, having lunch with my male colleagues in order to, to do this right. And I'm like, well, he shouldn't have to give that up. I mean, it's just how can we think about ways to incorporate women into the workplace and into leadership? And I think it takes a lot of intentionality. It really begins with, you know, and I'll close with this, it begins with first with a vision for men and women working together. You know, one of the biggest takeaways that I, I got in all of this, you know, in all of my research is that men couldn't answer the question, what do women bring to the table that's not there when it's just men or just women? What happens when men and women collaborate? It's in Genesis 1 and 2. Men and women are to work together. You know, they both get the directives of dominion. They both get the, the directives for procreation. They both get both of them. And so it's back there in Genesis 1, it's back there in Gen or Genesis 2, it's back there at the beginning. And so we, if we can't in the 21st century answer that question of what happens when we work together? And I know it's loaded with a lot of meaning. I know that it's, you know, we're talking about gender stereotypes and we're gonna go into some realm that we're gonna stereotype people, but um, we need to have a vision of what happens. In Ephesians 4, it talks about how he descended from on high and he gave gifts to men. The word there is actually anthropos, men and women, humanity in general. And he gave them to be prophets, teachers, preachers, and all of these different things. And he gave those gifts to both men and women. And men and women are to partner together. And what happens? What happens here is it says that from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. If you don't have women at the table in your church, you're not, you don't have all the pieces to your, your transmission or you're missing pieces of... Your body of Christ. Absolutely. You're missing your arms and your hands and all these different parts and you're not getting the work done as effectively as you could if you use all the giftedness in your midst. And so we have to have a strong vision, a strong theology of what it means for men and women to partner together in ministry. And then we have to actually intend to do these things, to make this work. We have to be have some level of intentionality. And I say incorporate women into the workplace because again, it's mostly, if you look across corporate America, the top levels are mostly men. I know we have exceptions and there are a lot of women leading at in various organizations but <coughs> primarily it is men serving in these organizations and if you look at the younger generation some statistics say that they they're like I don't even want to be a leader so you know we don't have reason to think that it's going to continue unless we can start tutoring these young women in leadership because they're thinking you know young women are thinking today I have to be perfect on Twitter I have to have the perfect life I have to have the perfect body I have to have the perfect this I have to have the perfect that leadership is one last thing I do not need in my life so I do not care it's one more expectation of me that's what young women are thinking and that's what we risk if we don't have an intentionality to develop and mentor these women you know both men and women in upper levels of leadership need to develop women in their midst um, and then we just need to have the means. You know, I use this, the VIM model from Dallas Willard. And we, 
we have to have the means. We have to have the the equipment and the the knowledge to be able to do this transformation well. We have to be honest about our hypersexualized culture. We can't be people who hypersexualize or sexualize a hamburger and then don't talk about sexuality in different organizations because you don't leave your culture at the door. The culture that you marinate in all day long, you don't leave that at the door when you walk into work. You're, it's still with you. It's still there. I had a professor when I was at Biola University, Talbot School of Theology, and he said that we have done a study, we've done analytics, and pornography has been accessed by every single building on this campus, and that includes the admin building. And it's not just men accessing porn. I mean, we know Fifty Shades of Grey, right? I Have you heard of Fifty Shades of Grey? Okay, I actually read that for Christianity Today, and I went and saw the movie, to my great shame, and wrote a review of it. And women bought that book in droves. Millions and millions of copies of that book sold. And it's nothing but literature porn. Women watch The Bachelor. I have watched The Bachelor. My husband used to walk through, I haven't watched it in years, but my husband would walk through the room and he'd just be walking. He'd just keep on walking. I'm not even going to look at what you're watching. And he'd go, oh, are you watching your relationship porn again? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you're right. It's pretty gross what I'm watching. So I haven't watched it in years, but women watch that, Real Housewives. And so it's not just men in this marinating in the hypersexualized culture. Women are as well. And I've t- spoken to a lot of confused women. So we need to be honest about that. We need to be open about that. We need to be talking about that. We need to be more, um, more following Danielle's example of an individualized approach where you're very open, like, where are you most comfortable? You know, hey, I really think that you have leadership potential. I'd like to figure out a way to mentor you, sponsor you. Where are you most comfortable meeting? And figure out a way that we can work together. Understand the people you work with, their approach. What are their approach to relationships with the opposite sex? What are, their, what are the ways that they approach? It's not just about what your approach is. What, are, what is their approach? What, is, what are they comfortable with? And really prayerfully considering a way forward in which we can partner together in ministry. And again, you know, I don't, we don't have all the answers for how this is going to happen. I mean, the Me Too movement just happened. We're still struggling, but I think that, you know, even here tonight, you've brought up a lot of great ideas as far as the individualized attention and, you know, being open about this and, you know, being cognizant about what people are comfortable with and, and things like that. And I think those are, those are very effective things to think about. But it's just a prayerful way that, you know, we can move forward and think about, okay, how can we be men and women partnering together effectively in ministry? And I think Christians in particular have an opportunity to model a way forward because it's not going to be just Christians struggling with this issue. It's going to be out there in the secular world. You know, even before the Me Too movement happened, there were articles out saying men on Capitol Hill wouldn't meet with women. And it was just... It was already out there, it was, and the Me Too movement just exploded. And so, as Christians, we can model a way forward and figure out ways in which we can view each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, rather than just, you know, people of the opposite sex working together. So, I'd like to close if with any questions that you may have or any comments, any thoughts. 
Yeah, thank you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think you talked yeah, a lot. We so. yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're past our time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.